Did you know that you can find just about all of our podcast episodes? We've done more than 50 now. On our website, just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like David Grant, Tom Juneau, Catherine Miles, Lane DeGregory, Christopher Gofford, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. What Cam was doing and what he wasn't had come to dominate so much in their lives. He was two years out of high school now, and he didn't have a job or a car or a place of his own or much money beyond what his mother gave him. Nothing at all to occupy his time except a computer that had carried him to the most extreme parts of the internet and to beliefs that no one in his family could understand. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with Terrence McCoy. McCoy covers poverty, inequality, and social justice in urban and rural America for the Washington Post. In February, he wrote the story, I Don't Know How You Got This Way. That piece is about how a young neo-Nazi has revealed himself to his family and how his mother and grandmother are left wondering if they will ever get him back. But the, the real story that we wanted to look at was who were these sort of very, very young people who came from all over the country to go to this protest? What in their relatively short lives had grieved them so much that they felt like they had to drive across the country and advocate for white supremacy? McCoy served in the United States Peace Corps in Cambodia, an experience that ultimately led to The Playground, a Kindle single available on Amazon. That book was named by the Washington Post as one of the best nonfiction books of 2013. His story, Today, Her Whole Life is a Free Skate, was included in Best American Sports Writing 2017. As usual, we've linked to a lot of McCoy's work on our website, you can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Terry, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, I, I was hoping we could start off by having you uh, read the first section of your story, I Don't Know How You Got This Way, which was published in, in the Washington Post in February. Yeah, sure, no problem. So it begins with, The mother and son were sitting in the living room, arguing about Ellen DeGeneres again. She definitely helps push the degeneracy. Didn't she have that cross-dressing little boy on Cam Musser, 21, instead of a recent guest? That little boy in makeup. He's a makeup artist, said his mother, Kirsten, 48, correcting him. What's wrong with that? He does a beautiful job. I don't think putting makeup on little boys is very kosher. He's not hurting anybody or himself, his mom said. Okay, he said, rolling his eyes. He does what he does. I do what I do. What Cam was doing and what he wasn't had come to dominate so much in their lives. He was two years out of high school now, and he didn't have a job or a car or a place of his own or much money beyond what his mother gave him. Nothing at all to occupy his time except a computer that had carried him to the most extreme parts of the Internet and to beliefs that no one in his family could understand. In the years since the 2016 presidential election, Cam had gone from supporting white supremacists to joining a neo-Nazi group to shouting White Lives Matter at a rally to standing beside Richard Spencer outside the White House, to increasingly terse conversations with his mother and grandmother, both of whom were beginning to fear what they had once thought was just a phase, was quickly becoming his life. How did this happen? Where did these ideas come from? Could he still be saved? 
So I, this story, I read this story um, when it, when it came out, and and I was struck by in how incredibly well done uh, it is um, structurally and, and scene and scene wise. Um, uh, when it's about a subject that is increasingly getting um, attention uh, on the national stage, can you can you give like a brief like a brief synopsis of what, of what actually the story is about, and then and talk about how this story actually came to be? Yeah, so the story came about uh, out of the, um, uh, the the violence and the protests in in Charlottesville um, last year, and I was uh, assigned a story to to pretty much do a piece about um, you know six of these guys or seven of these guys who who there had been a story about the person who had plowed his car into that protester, but the the real story that we wanted to look at was who were these sort of very, very young people who came from all over the country to go to this protest. What in their relatively short lives had aggrieved them so much that they felt like they had to drive across the country and advocate for white supremacy? And so I interviewed uh, a number of them for a long period of time, and I did a story, and, and one of them who I interviewed at the, at the end of the interview said something to the effect of, oh, yeah, you know, when we got done with the protest, I had to call my mom and dad and talk to them about, you know, to, to assure them that I was okay and that I hadn't, you know, I, was, I, was, I hadn't been hurt, I hadn't hurt anybody else. And that kind of stuck with me for months afterward. And I was in the throes of a different project, so I couldn't really do this story for uh, four or five months. Um, but then it, it was a question that I had from that moment on is, how do these families... Uh, how are they able to reconcile? How are they able to reckon with the reality that their son had become a neo-Nazi? I mean, what are these discussions that these families have? So we wanted to do a story that really got inside a family and really mined that territory because I felt like no one had done that story yet. No one had really gotten inside a family that was still tussling with all these extraordinarily difficult and very American issues. And so that kind of launched this sort of search that I started calling um, you know, uh, uh, white nationalist groups across the country. I was uh, really on Facebook and Twitter and Discord and 4chan and Reddit and all these sort of different platforms to try to find uh, somebody who would not only tell me their story about how they came to believe what they did, but also allow me to be able to get inside with a family and, and, and talk to them, the family, about uh, uh, what they thought of their own kid, because I recognize that the story would only work if you have both sides. Um, I said that's is an extraordinarily difficult undertaking to be able to find a family like that, and we're fortunate enough that that Cam and, and his family uh, allowed us in. I was gonna that kind of leads perfectly into the next question I wanted to ask, and and that was how did you find Cam? Uh, and I, I guess the the follow up that I was going to ask you kind of answered it, and that was like how did you decide that he was the person you wanted to write about? But it seems like he was willing to give you the access, and that helped a great deal. But how did you find him in the first place? Yeah, so I found Cam in the first place because I, I called um, the uh, Traditionalist Worker Party, uh, um, and I, I, I knew a few of them from the previous story that I had done. And I pretty much asked, I, was, I said, you know, what sort of... I was looking for somebody who had just recently committed this. I was like, you know, do you have anybody who's just joined up in the last six months or so? And that would be willing to talk about why they joined. And at this point, I didn't mention anything about, you know, the story of really I wanted to do a story about a family. I just really wanted to talk to somebody first and really uh, be able to explain what I wanted to do and introduce myself. And we'll get to, we'll take from there. And um, 
Cam, uh, he called. And uh, he didn't leave his name. He didn't leave a number. Uh, all he said was, you know, I heard you wanted to talk. Uh, I'd be fine to talk to you about why, why I think this way. And he hung up. And uh, just through our messaging system, I, I got the number and I called back. But Cam has been in such a state in his life. You know, he doesn't have a job. He doesn't have any money. He's living at home. He didn't even have a phone at that point. So mm-hmm. he made the call, not from his own phone, but from his mom's phone. He had to borrow his mom's phone to call me. And so I called back the number. And the person who answers, it's not Cam, it's his mom. And all of a sudden I found myself talking to her. And I was like, you know, I'm, it was a very uh, sort of strange conversation where I was like, you know, I'm doing the story about, you know, because I didn't know if she even knew that right, her son right. was in this group. And so I was like, you know, I'm doing the story about, you know, and then pretty much said, I was like, so uh, your son's in this group. I mean, do you know that? I mean, and she's like, oh, yeah, I, I know that. And I was like, so how are you all, you know, how are you feeling about this? And I remember distinctly her saying, like, oh, every day's walking on eggshells. And, um, and then so we talked for maybe 15 minutes or so. And, um, uh, and I recognized, you know, also her and I were having a big conversation about this, but I hadn't even talked to the guy who called me right. uh, to camp. So I was like, you know, is your, is your son? And she hadn't given me her name or anything like that, and I hadn't asked for it. Because I thought that would, you know, do something to, at that point, it was so, it was so sensitive. And uh, uh, so I was like, you know, can I, can I talk to your son? And I didn't know Cam's name at that point yet either. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I talked to Cam then for maybe a half hour, and he gave me this whole, you know, his whole orthodoxy screed about this book, White Power, all the stuff he was reading. And, um, and I talked to him. I was like, listen, you know, the story I really want to tell, and the way I was really approaching a lot of these guys I was talking to him about, was, you know, I wanted to do a story, and this is what the story was. I wanted to do a story about the social costs that you accrue as a result of joining a group with us. Friendships are ruptured. Families are torn asunder. You have to make a lot of, you know, the, you have to make a lot of personal sacrifices uh, to uh, become an adherent to something that the vast majority of Americans find to be absolutely repugnant. And... Um, so I, I, I talked to him about that, and I said, you know, this is our story I'm, I'm, I'm looking to tell, and I'd like to come out there and meet you and see what you, you know, had been through. And he was like, oh, yeah, you know, friends, and, uh, so many of them don't want to talk to me anymore. Uh, my family, you know, it's, it's just, uh, and all that stuff like that. Until finally I was like, okay, so what's your, um, what's your name? And, uh, um, and he's like, you know, Cam, Cam Musser. And uh, it doesn't spell it out. It was actually, so I, I only found out later, you know, that it was spelled a K. And, uh, and then, then the next very sensitive subject, very, very sensitive question is, uh, when the one that's always the most difficult question at the beginning of stories like this is, where do you live? Right. And, um, and he's like, oh, you know, I live outside Columbus. So I was like, no, no, I mean, where do you live? Uh, uh, you know, what's your address? And that's always an extraordinarily difficult question to, to ask and to get there because it could blow up the whole thing. Uh, but, you know, so he gave me – at first he was like, oh, I don't want you to come to my house, you know. And then even – I was like, okay, well, just give me – I was like, listen, I kind of – these are the sort of stories I do. I spend a lot of time with them, with people I write about. And I'm, you know, always very uh, – you know, I don't, I don't do one-offs. Like I really uh, want to do a story that does justice to what, this, what your family's going through. And so he finally – gave me his address just very quickly and uh frankly i already knew his address through public records but but uh uh but i needed him to give it to me because i couldn't just show up at his house mm-hmm. um so he gave me his address and i was like okay great 
And I was more or less like, all right, I'll see you on Tuesday. I said, you know, I'll go meet you there on Tuesday. And it was something like a Thursday or a Wednesday or something. And um, usually at this point in these, sort of, in these sort of stories, I actually try to go quiet. And I don't talk to them anymore. Um, after I already have a meeting set up and I already have a date set up, I have the address all secured. I don't want to do anything that's going to screw up what I got already. And I just go. And um, um, so pretty much Tuesday morning, I got in the car and I drove the, the five and a half hours to Columbus. And, uh, and I was just there. And, and, and the crazy thing was the person who I'd actually been in touch with more at that point was his mom. So that the night after the night I talked to Cam, his mom was texting me, and she was texting me like crazy. She texted me until, you know, midnight, um, you know, saying all these things like, I can't believe this is going on with my son. I can't believe this is what he's getting into. Is this a cult? She kept on thinking it was a cult over and over again. And, um, and she still wouldn't give me her name. Uh, uh, and I still wasn't asking for it. Mm-hmm. Until finally, she, uh, a day or two later, she, she friended me on Facebook, and she's like, I'm Cam's mom. And, uh, um, and so we went from there and I, I, I drove to Columbus and I, uh, called Cam. Cam wasn't answering. Cam didn't have a phone. There's no way he could touch with Cam. So I was, I was texting back and forth with his mom and she was like, oh, I had no idea you were even coming. You know, he never told me that. And then, then she called me back and she's like, Cam doesn't really want you at the house. You know, he doesn't want you to come by. And so, I mean... This is actually a very common thing with these sort of stories, and so you kind of sometimes just have to really, you know, get your way in. And I, I, I told him, I was like, you know, it's really important for me to be able to do this story, to understand what you guys are going through, to be able to, you know, meet you at your house. And she's like, oh, the house is such a mess, I can't have you over, it's 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 a disaster over there. And I was like, well, believe me, I've seen, you know, way, way worse and uh, than anything you get you're dealing with. Um, how about, I, you know, I'll be over in an hour, give you an hour to pick up whatever you got to do, and I'll see you in a few. And she's like, oh, okay, that's fine. And so I got her permission, and then I went over. And by the time I got over, that's where uh, Cam was over there. And, um, um, and within, you know, uh, uh, two hours of me being there, the scene that opens up this entire story was happening. Um, they, were, uh, uh, they were constantly having these sort of very peripheral conversations about this. It was never something that they were directly addressing, but it was a lot of sort of, you know, uh, uh, passing shots type action where something would happen. They'd have a, you know, very peripheral conversation about what was going on. And this is, this is the scene that I, I saw almost immediately of being there that day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how it started. So do you think, I'm fascinated by this idea that, do you think this story would have happened had you not talked to his mom first? I... You see, that was a very difficult thing, was the fact that I had talked to a lot of white supremacists who were just like Cam, and then I'd have a long conversation with them, and then I'd be like, well, I want to talk to your mom. You know, can I do that? And they'd be like, oh, I don't know about that. I don't think you want to talk to her. I'm not comfortable with you talking to my mom. And that happened time and time and time again. And um, and then the other tact would be like, I sometimes called the moms or the parents, and then I'd be like, I want to talk to your son. They'd be like, oh, I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just so happened by pure luck or happenstance or serendipity, whatever you want to call it, that the number that Cam had called me from was his mom's right, phone. Right, right. And, uh, and then so when I called back that number, it was his mom who I got immediately. And um, so, I mean, the way these stories work a lot of times is um, when you're getting deep with somebody, 
there has to be that even that personal rapport. You have to like the people, you know, and they have to like you back. And, you know, Kirsten and I, uh, from the first, like, you know, a few minutes of her and I talking to each other, uh, I mean, we liked each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we got along really well. And, you know, I was somebody that all of a sudden she had, she could talk to about this because she didn't have anyone in her life she could really talk to about this and all these worries and concerns that she had. And it was almost like she's like, oh, my gosh. And the, the thing for her was that she had all of these questions about what was going on, but she was scared to know the answers. And then I called her and I was like, you know, I, I know about this group that your son's in. And then she was the one asking me all the questions. She's like, can you tell me more about this? Because I, I don't know what's going on with my son. And, um, and, she, and so also I was in the position where I was feeding her information about what was happening. And so, I mean, this is a way to really, um, um, you know, it was, it was really serendipitous in that regard, uh, that sometimes those breaks just kind of happen in reporting. And a lot of times they don't, but sometimes they do. And this is one of those times that it did. Right. I know, like, when you were... Um, working with them to uh, convince them to allow you to uh, kind of embed yourself in their lives for a, for a little while. Uh, one of the conditions that Cam had was that, uh, or that maybe it was Cam and, and his mom, was that you don't use uh, his mom's last name and you don't mention the suburb. Yeah, that all came up uh, significantly later in the story. Um, that There was, uh, you know, Cam... Um, you know, this was, this was not, and this was not an easy story to pull together for a number of reasons. One of which was the fact of these, you know, conditions. Um, and, uh, so Cam, uh, at one point, you know, the way I, I got very deep in with this family and I spent a lot of time talking to his mom. I spent a lot of time talking to, uh, his grandma. I witnessed all of these scenes, all of the reporting was done. And um, I think at that point, uh, uh, Cam came to recognize uh, that, you know, he, he knew what had happened uh, after the New York Times story had come out, uh, in which uh, that man that was written about, Tony Aviter, was fired, as well as his wife. And I believe his family um, was harassed afterward by a lot of uh, people who were angry about the story. And, um, and so Cam was worried about that. And he's like, you know, you, you know all the stuff about my family, you know, all the stuff about what we're going through. You've gotten too, I remember him distinctly saying, you've gotten, you've gotten too deep. And uh, at that point, he's like, he, he told me he didn't, he didn't want to do the story anymore. Mm-hmm. And I had to, you know, really uh, work to say, you know, this story's never been done before. You know, it's, it's an important story. The, this is happening all over America. People need to know what this is. And uh, he was like, okay, okay, you know, you can use my name, but you can't use my uh my grandma and my mom's you know last name and i was like okay that's fine and then um the day before the story came out and i do this with with a lot of my stories especially stories that i i get extraordinarily personal with people and people you know when they rip their lives open to me i feel like i i owe them something i definitely owe them the fact that i should i should go over the story with them before it goes out because so they know what's going to be in it um and uh, it's obviously that's not that's not something you follow when you're doing like an investigation of a politician or something you know a normal everyday daily story. But mm-hmm. when you're writing about just ordinary people, everyday people, um, I feel like uh, as a journalist, um, I do owe them both both for fact checking purposes to make sure that everything's absolutely accurate, and also uh, so they know you know what's going to be in this story. Right. Um, absolutely. So. 
I was doing that, and I was terrified of what I called him. <laughs> I would imagine. Because I, I was like, he's already tried to, you know, he, he already told me once he was unsure if he wanted to continue, and I was like, once he knows what's in the story, you know, what's going to happen? I was terrified making that call. And, uh, and I was like, you know, is everything accurate in the story? And he's like, yeah, everything's accurate, you know, everything's right. And then he's like, you know, but really, I just don't want you to put um, the name of, of, of the, uh, the suburb in which we live in. And I was like, okay, well, let me go talk to my um, editor. And, uh, and we'll, we'll figure it out. And my editor, you know, said that's fine. Uh, so we ended up, at the end of the day, taking out that as well in the story uh, the day before it ran. Um, so uh, uh, did, did he realize that it, even without it in the story, it's not hard for people to, f- to figure that out? I'm sure he did. I mean, he's not a dumb guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, I mean, he believes abhorrent things. Uh, but he's, um, um, you know, he's not a dummy. Um, and he, uh, uh, I, I'm sure he knew what, what I, you know, and the thing is that, that what he had to recognize as well was the fact that, uh, he has a very uncommon name mm-hmm. and an uncommon spelling and for going forward now, uh, to a certain extent, I mean, this story will define him mm-hmm. and, um, all journalists, I'm sure, know of a circumstance in which you wrote a story about somebody 10, 15 years ago, that if you Google that person today, the first thing that pops up about that person is a story you wrote 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, um, and I, I believe that will likely be the scenario that, that Cam uh, will, will, will have going forward. Um, but, you know, to a certain extent, I mean, that shows his commitment to whatever he believes. So, I mean, in his own group, I'm sure they think, oh, yeah, man, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um even though the rest of us, like, you know, uh, but so, I mean, he, I, I, I'm confident that he recognized that and he knew that, but, uh, at the same time, I mean, people have to do what they have to do to try to make themselves feel comfortable in, in what they can. And, um, you know, for stories like this, when people do rip open their lives for you, um, I, I do try to do everything I can to make sure that someone, you know, is comfortable going forward with the story. No, yeah, I completely, I completely agree. You know, I, I, I mentioned uh, before we started recording that I had my, um, my students in my news writing class here at Fairfield University. Uh, we read the story about a week ago um, because I'm introducing them uh, to stories that take on national issues, but in a hyper-focused way. Um, and really the number one question that they had after they read this uh, was like how you were able to get those detailed scenes um, that that you have in the story. So like that that opening scene where they're where they're you know arguing about an uh, Ellen DeGeneres show and and that scene in the restaurant um, uh, with with the mom and the grandma and Cam. Um, how 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 much time did you have to did you end up spending with the family and and, and just how how do you how do you get that information in a way that, that you're then able to write it in, in the compelling way that you do. So, I mean, I've developed a, a lot of tricks, uh, uh, you know, of the trade, I guess, you know, with, with shorthand and writing extraordinarily fast. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I have been doing it for long enough now that I can, I can really write down dialogue, uh, you know, and get it all down as rapidly as I can. And in a lot of stories uh, I write as well, you know, at the beginning of the process, I um, say something to the effect of like, you know, I, I, I uh, uh, you know, I'm a journalist and I normally like to, you know, um, record and make sure that, you know, I, I 
get everything absolutely accurate and never misquote you and never get anything wrong. And then a lot of times I just kind of have a recorder going as well. So I write down absolutely everything that is going on, every bit of dialogue, um, every bit of action that I see. And then I have also a fail-safe in that system, which is oftentimes a recorded file. And that's how I'm able to render it. How much time did you spend with the family? So I spent, uh, with this family, this was two trips. Um, and uh, the first trip was, um, um, the first trip was, I think, four nights, five days. And the issue was, um, so I came back, and the issue was I didn't really have an ending to this story. And that was a concern, was that I was inside this family, and I knew what the story was. But every day was going by, and every day was almost a repetition of the one before, where it's like, you know, there's this uncomfortable, there's this tension in this family, but there's no resolution to that tension ever. There's no moment in which the the mom, Kirsten, was just like, either you stop this or you go. That just wasn't going to happen. It still won't happen. It's just not going to happen in that way. And it's a very interesting thing that it's not happening. I mean, what is more interesting than a parent feeling trapped in this sort of scenario? And, um, and so, uh, uh, so I came back and I was like, I really don't have any ending to this though, because there was never any moment when they had this, any sort of confrontation or conflict over it. It was just these very peripheral sort of conversations. And so, you know, I came back and I was just spending a lot of time talking to Cam on the phone and, you know, weeks go by, I was extraordinarily close to going with him to a rally in Knoxville that I had actually already bought my ticket for, and I was about to go board a plane later that day. And he called me and said, oh, that, that rally's off. I'm, I'm, I can't, I'm not going anywhere. There'd been some sort of, you know, uh, the logistics had gotten messed up, and he couldn't end up going. And... uh uh, so he he ended up going out to he ended up going leaving for Knoxville, but he ended up before getting there he ended up not being able to make it there. And so right before he got there, he, he like his ride there's just a mess about his ride. The guy's sister had gotten a car accident. This whole complicated story. So he ended up almost getting there, but not quite, and going home. And uh, while the rest of his buddies went on and spray painted what they did on the um at, 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 in the city there, and um. Uh, so, but, but anyway, I guess the long, long answer is I had no ending. So I was like, what the heck am I going to do? So I kept on calling him and then I finally called his grandma and weeks beforehand, she told me, oh yeah, I'm really planning, you know, I, I need to talk to him about this. No one's talked to him about this. Somebody has to talk to him about this. But every time I called her, she's like, oh, she's not the right time. I'm just not feeling well, this or that. So I was like, okay, there's no pressure. Just, just keep me in the loop. You know, like whatever you feel like you want to do this, just let me know. And I'd love to, you know, be able to be there when that's happening. And, um, so, again, weeks go by until I call her one day, and she's like, yeah, I think I'm going to try to do it, you know, on Friday. And it was like a Wednesday. And uh, so I was like, all right, well, you know, is it okay if I, if I come? And by that point, you know, she's really used to me, and the whole family is very used to me at that point, and we've talked a lot. And um, um, she's like, yeah, that's fine. So um, I get in the car and I go, and I, I spent, you know, another three or four days with them. Uh, and uh, everything kind of built up to that scene where they, where she does talk to him at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Did you, did you know that like once you experienced that, that that would have to be the end of the story? And since it, I mean, it's the kind of the end of your reporting. But did you know like right off the bat that's also the end of the story? 
I knew was the end of the story. Um, yes, I did. Two things tipped me off was the end of the story. The first thing was that there was this moment at the restaurant in which she was, you know, really pressing him, and he's getting more and more flustered, more and more uncomfortable, until finally he stood up and he took off his sweater, and underneath that sweater he's wearing this white nationalist T-shirt the entire time. And, you know, the grandma just looks at it, and it was this, it was this moment when, this moment of just realization, and it was a moment of, of coming out in a certain way. And I was like, you know, that's kind of the finality of what we're looking for, of like that, that there was this tussling back and forth, this family not knowing if he could or could not be brought back. But then in that moment, it was clear that that wasn't going to happen. And then they go home, and uh, I knew I wanted Ellen to be something of, you know, recurring moment in this story, you know, sprinkled all the way through. Uh, and, and then, so they go home, you know, the grandma leaves, Cam goes up to his room, the, the mom, Kirsten goes out and, and goes grocery shopping, then she comes back, and then she picks up the remote and she turns on TV, and the thing that she flips it to is Alan. And I was like, you know, that right there is really this, this perfect encapsulization of what this whole family's going through. Cam is upstairs in his bedroom doing God knows what, and just a few feet below, uh, in the living room, she's watching Alan. And uh, it was these two worlds that were intertwined so deeply, but so disconnected at the same time, in the same roof, under the same roof. And so when that happened, I was like, you know, that's really the story. I think that's, I think that's the ending right there. So, so you reached out uh, to Cam and his mom uh, the night before the story ran. What, I mean, what were their thoughts um, about the story itself? And uh, have they faced any of uh, the backlash that, that we saw with the New York Times story and, and that, that, that main subject? Um, so, you know, Cam, his major concerns um, were about the, uh, uh, you know, the suburb. And also I had a detail in there about some sort of, he's going to, he's planning on going off to do uh, work in Tennessee with the group. And there was uh, the type of warehouse that they're going to go to. And he wanted me to take out, you know, any, any more identifying details of that. So I did. Um, and uh, so, I mean, his concerns are more or less like that, but pretty much uh, when I go over stories with people, I always tell them beforehand, I was like, you know, this is really do, this is in, to ensure accuracy. You know, I really want to go over this and make sure that everything is good and accurate in that regard and factual. And then so I get done going over the story and I ask, you know, like, was that all accurate and factual? And they say, yeah, you know, that was, that was all accurate and factual. And, uh, you know, at that point, uh, I kind of have what I need to know. Right. Um, you know, at that point, my, my job is not to ask them, like, well, what did you think of it? Are you, are you happy with the story? I mean, did it make you feel good? I don't, I really do not think a journalist should really ever get into the habit of doing <laughs> right, that. Right. Uh, uh, you know, but, but at that point, I ask them, you know, after I go over with them, I say, is that factual? And they say, yeah, it's factual. I'm like, okay, well, the story will be out, you know, in a few days, and I'll send you a link when it comes out. And I thank them for spending so much time with me and for, for opening up blast to me. And then, you know, I kind of I let that be it. Have you heard? And from, then, oh, sorry. And then the story comes out, and uh, you know, I, I never heard from Cam. Um, still haven't heard from him. I have. I have been messaging um, pretty frequently back and forth every, few, uh, you know, every week or so with Kirsten. Uh, her and I keep pretty good contact, and also with with the, the grandma Bobby. Um, and uh, you know, Kirsten, uh, she she read it a number of times after it came out, and she just said, you know, it's. Uh, you know, just really sad. She's she was sad about it, um, and 
and that was really the, her, her emotion, you know, just feeling sad. Um, and um, they, uh, to the best of my knowledge, they've not told me about anything. I haven't really asked them, I haven't really probed the matter, but they've not told me that they have experienced any backlash, and my, my belief is they, they have not. And, uh, um, and I think the reason for that is the fact that they were, they were such clear... Uh, they were not allies in this. They were just they were just sort of hapless, you know, family members trying to figure out what to do. And I, and I, honestly, I felt that their position and what they're going through was relatable to a lot of people who have kids. And at a certain point, you can't control what your kids do. They're just going to be who they are, and uh, you can't really blame the family for that. Well, I've been uh, talking with Terrence McCoy. Uh, Terry covers poverty, inequality, and social justice in urban and rural America for the Washington Post. We're going to take a short break, uh, but when we when we come back, we'll talk about how uh, Terry became a reporter and how he ended up at the Washington Post. This is Gangry the podcast. Gangry the podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with uh, Terrence McCoy, a reporter for the Washington Post. He's written. Uh, he's also written the Kindle single, The Playground, which was selected by the Washington Post as one of the best works of nonfiction in two thousand in two thousand twelve. Um, Terry, when did when did you know that you wanted to be a reporter? Um, so I knew that I wanted to be a reporter. Um, you know, probably back. You know, when I was in college, I I had no idea I ever wanted to be a journalist. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And it just so happened that I, I, I was taking, you know, journalism 101 reporting and writing, and uh, uh, I was doing this, my first story was about, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, just some, some attorney, I was writing a profile of some attorney in the city, and, and I got a quote, and I was like, oh my God, this is the best quote that has ever been told to any reporter in the history of journalism. Right. It was a quote, it was pretty much like, you know, uh, when when this person speaks says something we all listen and I was like oh gold <laughs> and so <laughs> I, uh, uh, I I I went back and I wrote up the story and the story got just like destroyed by my by my professor he thought <laughs> it was a huge you know puff piece and but nonetheless I was like wow that's a lot of fun you know I really like talking to that person and I thought that was a really good time and um, so I was just you know I was just a student at at the University of Iowa and. Uh, um, and so I trying to trying to break into this, and you know, coming from the Midwest, uh, I was definitely not, you know, you know, a lot of a lot of people who end up at the Post or a lot of these publications come from, you know, these, you know, top flight schools, and uh, uh, so I was like, you know, how can I really, what can I really do to, you know, differentiate myself? I really wanted to give back and do something important, so uh, I went to the Peace Corps, um, and I was in Cambodia, 
for um, for two years, and and uh, uh, really got into that. Really got into learning the language, doing stories there, and I wrote a lot about you know Cambodia. Wrote a lot about um, you know uh, the region uh, for publications back home when when I was when I was out there. And, uh, you know, I just really just fell in love with writing and reporting and, and really uh, the adventure aspect of it. You know, I'm, I really love the adventure aspect of it where you're kind of going someplace that nobody's been or knows about and, find, and, and working. In, like I'm at my best and the stories I want to do is I want to be someplace where nobody else is, no other reporter is, no other reporter's thought to go there. And the worst thing I can ever have happen to me is if I'm reporting on something and I see another reporter there, I'll just be crestfallen, you know, about it. Like I want to be, I want to be as far away from other other reporter as possible. And I also don't want to be talking to people who have a lot of experience, you know, talking to reporters usually because like they they just feed you kind of canned lines. I want like the real authenticity, the 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 real deal. Um, so that's kind of what it, what attracted me to it, uh, you know, from from the beginning. So when you were in the Peace Corps, is is that where did the playground uh, come out of your time uh, in Cambodia? Yeah, it did. Uh, so that was I, I went after I got done with Peace Corps. I went and to grad school and in New York uh, at Columbia, and uh, that was my uh, master's thesis. Where um, you know, I recognized when I was there that there's a situation in Southeast Asia um, where at that time there was this sort of tension between who was going to be the hegemon in the region. Was it going to be China or was it going to be America? And uh, both sides were pumping a lot of money into the area, but China was pumping significantly more. And the uh, autocratic government in Cambodia was recognizing this as a cash cow. And so what was happening there was that they're taking tons of money from the Chinese and these investments to build all these development projects across Cambodia. But in the process, what had to happen was they had to evict, you know, hundreds of thousands of people from their homes uh, to be able to have the raw land to be able to build this. And so what this story was all about was about this one very um, iconoclastic protester in the middle of the most controversial development in, in the country's history uh, and her battle uh, with, with a group of other women to be able to save her land um, against these very powerful forces, both the Cambodian government and also these very extremely wealthy Chinese businessmen. Um, and uh, so that's what that story was really about, was I you know, got inside with this protest movement. And, uh, you know... The reporting of that was quite difficult as well. I mean, it was uh, uh, the situations were uh, was quite tense. Um, you know, the government was going in with a, a lot of guns, a lot of bulldozers, and destroying whole communities. Um, you know, while people people had to just flee their homes and then watch uh, under armed guard as bulldozers came in and destroyed everything. Um, so the story was really about about that. Did you uh, learn anything? while you were volunteering for the Peace Corps that that ultimately helped you become a, a better reporter? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, so uh, a big part of the job I do is uh, adaptability and also, you know, being comfortable in really any sort of circumstances because the fastest thing that will make sources clam up is if they sense that the reporter themselves is not comfortable. Um, that they feel like a, that they look like and feel, act like a fish out of water. 
And, you know, in Peace Corps, the only way you survive is by adapting to what sometimes can be an extraordinarily foreign set of circumstances. And uh, so that was my entire life when I was living there. And those skills I was able to develop to be able to both find, uh, you know, being able to be comfortable in any certain circumstances and also being able to find common ground with people who you may not share anything with. Uh, these are a set of skills that are indispensable in journalism. So that when I do stories where I go out into, I do a lot of stories in Appalachia, people who are desperately poor. In, in, uh, up in the mountains. And, uh, you know, being able to find common ground uh, with, with folks who have no reason to trust you um, is, is a really important skill. Or when I do stories in, you know, in very uh, rough neighborhoods in Baltimore, uh, again, being able to find ground with people you might have a lot of common with it to begin with. Uh, these, are, these are really important skills and skills I, I learned in the Peace Corps. So uh, how did you end up at the Washington Post then? So when um, I got done with that Kindle single, I um, recognized I really wanted to do long-form stories, stories that uh, always had heft and substance. And, uh, you know, I, I was the source. I, I've never really bur- burned with the zeal of, uh, you know, being a, co- a breaking news cops reporter. I mean, I can do it. I, 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 it's fine. I, li- I like it fine. But... Um, um, you know, I'm just not, I, I just don't have that, that same metabolism that some of them have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where I'm at my best is really just being able to do, you know, a lengthier story. And so I want to do that. And so what I ended up doing was uh, I took a series of jobs with all weeklies. Um, I went to uh, the Houston Press down in Houston, and then I went to New Times, uh, Miami New Times in, in Miami, Florida. And, uh, and so... This is like the, one of the best jobs in the world. I mean, you get paid nothing, <laughs> like nothing. But you, you, they give you so much space in the paper. They give you 5,000 words every six weeks to be able to tell the craziest stories you can find in Florida. And there's no shortage of crazy right. stories in Florida. Right. And uh, so uh, I did that then for a number of years. And then uh, one day I got, you know, I got an email from uh, folks at, at the Post that they were looking to, to – you know, hire basis that just bought the paper, and they're looking to do a few um, new openings. And uh, the opening I ended up taking was uh, an all-night position. So I worked from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. for a year on this new initiative called the Morning Mix, uh, which at the time became the most popular and successful of, uh, uh, you know, digital innovation at, at the paper. Um, and, uh, uh, so I did that. And then after that was done, I ended up, uh, getting a job uh, covering poverty and, uh, you know, it, it was, it was a great fit for the fact that I had, you know, so much of my fundamental experiences have been as a Peace Corps volunteer, you know, living in, in, among some of the poorest people on earth. So I really felt a close affinity with people who, with what it's like to scrape by. Yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you, uh, and I mentioned that you have a, a very interesting beat description, at least in your bio on the Washington Post uh, webpage, and that you cover poverty, inequality, and social justice in urban and rural America. Uh, and I'm not curious, like, what about that um, uh, really piques your interest? It sounds like the coolest job in the world. You know, I can't think of a cooler job than that. Um, is what piques my interest the most. I mean, just you, hearing you say that, I'm like, wow, that's a that's a, that's a right. cool job. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, like, it, it's, you know, covering poverty 
uh, is something that I, I really care about, and and I really care about I, ideas of of um, you know there are these extraordinarily tired tropes in journalism that everybody trots out from the first year uh, J school students to uh, anyone else like you know they give a voice to the people who don't have any, and, and I uh, when you're writing about people who got nothing who live on disability or, or uh, you know, uh, they're so forgotten. Um, I mean, those stories really matter to me. They do. And, and that sort of topics, I think, are, are vitally important for us to understand who we are as a people and as a country. Um, that uh, there, there's a very top-down way to write about poverty. You know, Washington makes a decision about policy, what we're going to do about Medicaid, what we're going to do about food stamps, what we're going to do about disability insurance. And that's a very normal way to write about these issues. Or you, you interview a bunch of academics, and they say, oh, well, we think this or this. Or you interview a bunch of partisans, and they definitely have no shortage of opinions about all of these issues. The stories that don't get told as much as they should is just going out there and spending as much time as you can with the people who are living in those circumstances. And that is the niche that I look to fill. Um, those are the stories I want to tell, you know, about just those regular people living those lives. Well, I've been talking with Terrence McCoy of The Washington Post. In February, Terry wrote a story about a neo-Nazi in Ohio and how his mother and grandmother are wondering how they can pull him out of that life. As usual, we've linked to the stories that we've talked about today, as well as some of uh, Terry's other work. You can find all of that at gangrythepodcast.com. Terry, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. 